Over the last several months, Fordham Conversations has stayed strong during the COVID-19 pandemic. Every week, we catch up with guests remotely and shed light on the Fordham community. We uncover the ongoing efforts on campus to grapple with issues that impact our world. This week, we relive two special guests. Fordham Professor of Political Science and Director of the Master's Program in Elections and Campaign Management, Monica McDermott, and Fordham Interim Director of Athletics, Ed Cole. McDermott details how the pandemic has thrown a wrench into an election year and discusses the integrity of absentee voting. Cole reacts to the suspension of fall sports at Fordham with recent news coming out of the Patriot League and Atlantic 10. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV and WFUV.org. So when you look at the polls you're conducting right now and the pandemic is a massive indicator of whether mm-hmm. people will vote, could still be a factor come November. Is that something that's being taken into mind? Okay, could the results be different in November, just given that you don't know whether these people will turn out to vote? Oh, absolutely. And it's still so early, even in a normal election cycle, as if there is such a thing, but in a more normal election cycle than this one, it would still be very early in the race. And any poll that comes out and says, you know, Biden versus Trump at this point in time is just, again, at this point in time, this is where people's preferences are. But so much is still remaining that could happen between now and election time. And this year, with COVID-19, we have no idea what's going to happen. And if anyone out there says they have an idea what's going to happen and they're actually correct, then they deserve to make a lot of money. Because at this point, I think most pollsters and most pundits are just scratching their heads saying, we got to wait to see what happens because it's just a new normal. This may seem like a more narrow-minded question, but will this election be a referendum on the handling of COVID-19, or will other factors be considered just as evenly? Well, we're in a time, you have to view the COVID-19 pandemic, at least politically speaking, in terms of American politics in a larger sense, which is that we're in a time of such polarized opinion in America, where Democrats are completely on one side and Republicans are so completely on the other side and the sides just don't agree at all. So Trump is maintaining his base of support that he's had since he was elected, regardless of what's going on with COVID-19. His numbers, his approval numbers have been amazingly steady throughout this pandemic. They went they went up a little bit in the early going of it, but they've settled back down to where they had been, which is like mid-40s approval for him. So he still got his base of support because of this partisan divide in our country. What really depends in terms of the election is how independents are going to vote. And that's the sliver of the American populace that could potentially be influenced by what's going on with the handling of COVID-19. But again, it remains to be seen. It could just be that independents who lean towards towards the Democrats just vote with the Democrats and those who lean towards Republicans just vote with the Republicans. And it's sort of a wash as we see in many elections. So we don't really know how people are going to react to the handling of this. 
many people will just shoot this down, but it's been raised. Can the November election even be postponed? That is a very good question. Um, it, <laughs> as as I understand it, um, it would take an act of Congress to do so. But um, there are people who are far more expert in that than I am. So I'll leave it to the legal analysts to get into all of the details on that. But um, it's I, as I understand it, it is possible, but it's highly, highly unlikely. Given that so many primaries have continued to take place and people have had to choose between their health and their right to vote, does that set a dangerous precedent moving forward into the November election? Anything could happen between now and then. It's um, it, it remains to be seen. I, I, I can't even begin to fathom what might happen because so much is so different in our world right now that we just, we have no idea. In the recent poll that you were part of conducting out of Fordham University, the support for all-male balloting was indicative in 53% of the results moving to all-male and 69% of them on the Democratic side, 31% on the Republican side. Why do you think there's so much of a partisan divide on that very topic? That is... um... That's actually a really easy answer because um, <laughs> Democrats believe and Republicans believe as well, and Trump has actually said this out loud, that the more people that vote, the better Democrats do. And changing to all-male balloting usually ups the turnout rate. And so the fear is, and this is what Trump stated flat out, was that if you switch to all-male balloting, you'll never have another Republican elected again. That was, it's not a direct quote, but that was pretty much what he said. And um, that's the belief out there. There are scholars who have shown that that's not necessarily true, that that's, but it is conventional wisdom. And so that tends to be the way people look at it. And so, of course, Democrats say, yes, the more the merrier, let's have that kind of participation. And Republicans come down on the side of all all male balloting, excuse me, could lead to more fraud. And they're more afraid of fraud, whereas Democrats are more afraid of low turnout and disenfranchisement. And so those are the two sides that are fighting each other in this battle. For those who wouldn't necessarily understand it, is there a difference between no excuse absentee balloting and a full nationwide mail-in election? Um, That's a good question. Um, There is because... In an an absentee balloting, excuse me, you have to request your ballot. So even if it's no excuse absentee balloting, you still have to get your your absentee ballot. And you still have the option in that case of voting in person. If you switch over to all mail balloting, which is what Oregon does, for example, then it's you can drop your mail ballot off at the election site but you don't have the option of going in and voting in person at any election site. You actually automatically get your ballot in the mail and you it's up to you to either mail it in or to drop it off. So that's why it makes turnout so much higher is because it's a lot easier. But if you switched over to just no excuse absentee balloting, you would still have the public um, polling sites open and people could still go in and vote in person if they wanted to. From your perspective, would this be more of a state or a federal issue? So if Congress were to approve 
funding for mail-in balloting, would it be nationwide or would it be on the states to then make it possible? It's on the states because it is the secretaries of state that establish these rules. So if a state wanted to buck a national trend and not do it, I don't believe that Congress has any power to force it to do so. And I don't believe that, it, that Congress would force it to do so. If there wasn't a pandemic that could hamper the ability to vote, in your mind, what would be the biggest voting obstacles that still exist today and could lead to some sort of suppression, even if there wasn't a pandemic factored in? Well, we've seen in the past um, couple of years, in the past couple of elections, we've seen some attempts at voter suppression that had nothing to do with the pandemic or anything like that, where we've seen polling places closed in or at least restricted or the number of them cut down in high minority population areas, which is... basically an attempt to squash the minority turnout. And that's that's what it is. And it's been done by Republican governors. And that's unfortunate. And the reason they do it, they say, is because of fraud. And they may actually believe that, but what it does end up doing is suppressing Democratic votes, regardless of what the motive of it is. So even if you give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing it for good reason, it still has that ultimate effect. So yes, there are ways that secretaries of state and governors of states can suppress voter turnout in various areas that they may choose. Democrats could do it just as easily as Republicans do it. Um, It would just be different kinds of areas that they would choose. It seems the system so divided where, depending on the state and how the court structure is in that state, that could determine which parts of the population turn out to vote. Am I right in saying that the court makeup of the state, the governor of the state, plays a huge role in how things could look on Election Day? Absolutely. It absolutely does. The partisan makeup, the state legislature, all of it, yes. So if you've got a red state that is solidly red, they're going to have one way of going about doing the election. If you've got a state that's reliably blue, they're going to have another way of going about it. Taking the Wisconsin primary, for example, there were several reports of people contracting the virus after they went to a polling station and casted their vote. But the turnout wasn't that far off from what you'd expect. Do you think the virus could really hamper the vote or would you expect turnout to be around the same? Well, Wisconsin was an an interesting early test case because one of the things it did with there was so much controversy surrounding whether or not they were going to allow a mail-in ballot and, you know, no, no excuse absentee balloting, which they ended up not doing because um, the courts decided not to allow that to happen. And and so what you had were what we think happened, um, although there wasn't an exit poll in the state, so we don't actually know from voters themselves, but what we think happened was that people reacted to that and the Democratic turnout was higher because people were angered by the fact that they felt that the vote was being suppressed and that it wasn't fair. And that's why you saw Democrats winning when you wouldn't have necessarily expected them to win in areas where they wouldn't normally. And so, you know, there was that state court race that is sort of infamous at this point. So, yeah, I think... 
you could have, depending on the type of system that's in place, you could have a backlash in November on either side against the way the state decides to run the election. With early voting options varying per state, is it possible to get the same turnout without expanded mail-in voting? Because you mentioned, as we saw in Wisconsin, people just could be angered and get out to vote anyway. Yeah, I think you absolutely could. I think that people might feel, I I think that COVID-19 in some ways is bringing people together, um, even while it's ironically, we're socially distanced. Um, I think it's bringing people together and I think it is giving us a sense of shared community. And I think that people might feel, and I, I don't have any evidence of this at this point, but it would be something interesting to look into, but I think that people might actually feel that it is their duty as well as their right to go out and express their voice at that point, even if there is a personal danger in it. How much do you think the campaigns will be impacted due to the fact that there's the ongoing debate of whether rallies can be held or safe to be held? You don't see the candidates as much in a climate like this. From your campaign experience, how much will it be impacted? That's a very likely possibility. Um, I think Trump, you're going to see a lot of just because he is the sitting president. So in that way, he's advantaged by what's going on. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, he's he's got command of news, the news cycle. He is the president. That's what presidents do. Sitting presidents have a Rose Garden strategy that gives them attention in the news media. Um, whereas Joe Biden is stuck in a basement and not yeah. able to generate the same kind of coverage that Trump does. He's trying, but he's not achieving it. And so he might generate some coverage once he announces his vice presidential pick um, and the conventions. If they're allowed to happen, that will give a bump to each candidate. But at this point, yeah, at least Joe Biden, the challenger, is largely invisible. And whether that changes depends on how much the rules are relaxed and how things go forward. Speaking of conventions, there was a story out in the New York Times questioning whether they're necessary in this climate and really necessary overall, whether it's just an old political format. Do you think this climate will force the parties to reevaluate how they structure the campaign season and conventions? I think in this current environment, they should self-assess. And I think there is the question of whether they're necessary. I, in, in modern day and time, since we've gone over to popular election of the nominee rather than the old backroom cigar smoking, you know, old <laughs> guys picking the candidate, um, we've gotten away from that. And so the convention really is more for pomp and circumstance these days than it is for any real purpose. Um, you know, you hammer out the party platform, but no one really pays attention to the party platform anyway, to be frank. And so it, um, yeah, I think that the parties should question it. But I also think that if one party goes ahead with theirs, the other party is pretty much going to have to, out of political necessity, go ahead with theirs as well. Is the bump in polling lasting enough where like you just alluded to, one party would feel they had to match that level of coverage if one party held their convention? It doesn't tend to be a long-lasting bump, but um, 
it does sort of, there are effects that linger. There sometimes are standout speeches by um, future candidates or past candidates or political office holders that really can ignite the party faithful and get them excited about things. And that's where it actually matters. So not necessarily in winning over independent voters who probably don't watch conventions anyway, but at least in getting the party faithful excited about their nominee. And that might be a slightly longer lasting effect that turns people out come November. Before we wrap up, you've been involved in several publications, but you actually have a book out, Masculinity, Femininity, and American Political Behavior. Can you walk us through what you cover in the book for those who may not know? Sure. Um, That was a project I did. Um, It actually came about, um, not to go into too much history here, but it actually came about from teaching my gender in American politics class because the first semester I taught it, we um, I had the students take what is a personality assessment of getting at whether they have mostly masculine traits or mostly feminine traits. And one of the things we found in that class was that pretty much everyone in the class, and they were all very liberal, I will say, just because you have to figure the self-selection bias that goes into taking a gender in American politics class, but they were all very liberal and all had very strongly, whether male or female, very strong feminine traits. And it made me think, hmm, there's something there because the Democrats, of course, their party platforms tend to be far more, excuse me, far more feminine than masculine because they care about things like health care and child care and social welfare, whereas the Republican Party plank is much more masculine. They care about defense and foreign policy and getting tough on, you know, welfare and things like that. And so I actually did a survey, a lengthy survey to test whether or not people who have more de- more feminine than masculine traits tend to vote more for a Democratic candidate and whether or not people who have more masculine than feminine traits, excuse me, I'm stumbling over myself, tend to vote more for the Republicans. And that's actually what I found. I also found that people with more masculine traits were more likely to be involved politically and to pay attention to politics because, of course, politics is this kind of blood sport rather than so people who are sort of more into compassion and community and things like that don't go for politics in the same way as people who are more dominant and aggressive and have that kind of personality profile. So it was a fun examination into how these aspects of our personalities help determine our politics. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You just heard from Professor of Political Science at Fordham, Monica McDermott. Now, time for Fordham Interim Director of Athletics, Ed Culp. Well, the Patriot League has announced that the fall 2020 season will be suspended and the Fordham football season as a result will not be happening in the fall as well. Joined by Fordham Interim Director of Athletics, Ed Cole. Ed, thanks for joining us. How are you, Manny? Uh, Sorry to be joining you for these these reasons, but obviously I want to give you that update and make sure we provide all information, not only to, uh, of course, our student athletes and coaches who we addressed earlier this morning, uh, but also to our alumni, our, our Maroon Club supporters, as well as the rest of the uh, Fordham community that is so supportive of our Fordham football program. 
So Ed, in the press release, you said the health and well-being of our student athletes is the number one priority. How tough was that balance throughout this entire process, the entertainment aspect versus the health aspect? You know, Manny, and you and I have talked a lot over the last uh, probably four months here of this pandemic situation. And, uh, you know, right out of the gate, we established an athletics pandemic committee to make sure we were identifying all needs and health and safety protocols for our athletic department, for our facilities, and for our student athletes. And um, working very closely with the university and their, their reopening group, um, and they've been very, very supportive. And I, I think it just kind of came to a point here uh, where we sit here in the second week of July. Uh, from a football perspective, we were looking to have our student athletes come back to campus here in another few weeks to start training camp and start football preparation. And um, I just think, unfortunately, it just kind of ran out of time in terms of the opportunity to do that in a safe uh, and, and comfortable, controllable measure. And I think I know you saw you, we've been monitoring and you and I have talked a lot about a lot of the failed tests throughout a lot of the uh, football voluntary workouts in the month of June, especially a lot of the FBS schools. And I think we've seen a lot of struggles here uh, from our professional sports. Uh, right, whether that be our Major League Baseball, our NBA group down in Orlando, and I think everybody's been monitoring it so closely. And then I think the last two, two to three weeks and those spikes of the other 19 states throughout the United States have just become very, very overwhelming. And right now there's 19 states, if they were to fly into New York City, whether that be LaGuardia or JFK, Manny, there's a 14-day quarantine on those individuals. Um, and I, you know, I think obviously last week we heard the news about the Ivy League making that decision and uh, the Patriot League has been doing meetings uh, every week for the past X amount of months and having these conversations and monitoring closely and I think the presidents just felt like now is the time to make that decision in order for us to prepare accordingly uh, for the reopening of a lot of our campuses as well as the safety of our student athletes. Ed, you mentioned you were nearing the point where the athletes would potentially be returning to campus if there were to be a fall season to get geared up and ready to go, if that season were to occur, what do you think that will look like in the coming weeks so the athletes can stay fresh in the event that the football season is postponed to a later date? Yes. Yeah, so so the, the Patriot league, I guess it was two or three weeks ago, um, had moved back the start date, Manny, which you're, you're aware of. So they wanted all student athletes to return to campus with the rest of the general student population. So we were planning on our football athletes coming back uh, April, uh, excuse me, August 15th, which would have been the move-in week uh, for the start of classes, which starts um, on August 24th. So that was our plan based around the modified schedule to probably gain additional four weeks um, for our football players and our Patriot League athletes. I, I think it's something we're still going to look, look at and monitor. So the Patriot League is committed right now to – uh, looking at and exhausting all avenues to make sure we, that we have the opportunity to possibly practice and have workouts in the fall. And of course, they're still looking at the opportunity to move the football season to the spring. So those are the two, two situations that we want to monitor closely over X amount, of, X amount of weeks. This is a very fluid situation, as we all know. But from a football standpoint and Patriot League competition standpoint, uh, the workouts in the fall and, of course, the potential of the spring season are the two things we want to monitor and see how that's going to play out. But I think that that move back situation for our student athletes with the rest of the general student population is still our plan and still our efforts for our football players. Now, in terms of the rest of our student athletes and our population, Manny, um, the A-10 uh, and the leadership, obviously, of, of Commissioner Bernadette McGlade has been extremely strong 
as you know, probably over already two months ago, um, the, the, the conference and the A-10 members got ahead of the fall sports by modifying the, the, the travel, We're obviously making sure we removed any air travel, minimized any and all hotel stays, and created those regional pods uh, for volleyball and men's and women's soccer to ensure that we had the safest protocols and travel in effect. So we, we, we have two more meetings this week with obviously our athletic directors and our presidents. And again, the A-10 has been extremely, uh, like the Patriot League, has been extremely active and aggressive. So we'll know more hopefully the next uh, week or 10 days in terms of monitoring the climate and landscape of, of our country and collegiate athletics. But the A-10 is, has been very much on top of things too as we look at uh, what the fall seasons look like for the rest of our student athletes. Because that too would have been an, an early August start date for our student athletes to get training and preparation ready for their fall seasons. So we're monitoring that closely and of course preparing for all accordingly. And again, kudos to both uh, Jen Huppel uh, on, on the Patriot League side and of course Bernadette McGlade on the A-10 side. Both conferences, a lot of daily calls, a lot of daily Zooms as you would imagine and a lot of exhausting all potential opportunities and areas. But again, as you started off this call by saying, safety of our student athletes first and foremost, and monitoring and looking at that risk that we are putting our student athletes in. So we'll continue to keep you abreast, but I, I think you're right, Manny. There'll be a lot of movements here over the next few weeks. Ed, you mentioned how these are unprecedented times <laughs> and they call for unprecedented measures for sure. This will be the first fall without varsity football at Fordham since 1969. How much of a void is that in the campus community, given that it's such a staple to walk up to Jack Coffee Field on a Saturday and catch a football game? You, you know, I, I think you bring up a really, really great point, Manny. And I think, of course, our priority has always been the safety and health of our student athletes has always been try to find any way possible to get athletics up and going for the fall. And that's been our efforts here for X amount of months. And that's been the university's focus is how do we get student athletes and students back on campus? How do we get campus back up and running? So that's been everybody's full desire and, st and still is, right? From every standpoint is how do we get things back up and running? And those other pieces have been areas that we're unable to control. So how do we continue to monitor that? But I think, um, I think, I think you're spot on in that we're quick to kind of forget some of the school spirit, some of the culture and environment pieces that football and athletics brings, not only to our campus and to our student body, but to our entire alumni population and to our, our representation throughout New York City and the tri-state area and, of course, the country. Um, you know, for, for a nice fall Saturday for our, our administrators, our staff, our faculty to to rally around a football game and, and a Patriot League conference game on campus uh, is, is really disheartening and disappointing and very, very sad, of course. Um, and again, I know something that's a little bit out of our control, but um, I, can't, I can't express my, my, my sincere apologies and, and, and love and thoughts to our student athletes, of course, who are disappointed about not being able to play football this fall on, on a Saturday, to your point, and, but also to the rest of our student population, our students who really enjoy the camaraderie, uh, the friendship, the engagement, and, and the ability to celebrate and, and, and enjoy a Saturday together. Hopefully, we'll be able to get that back sooner than later, Manny, but it, it is a very, very good point, as you know, as being a student of this, of this university, a, uh, a tough pill to swallow from a school spirit standpoint. Ed, be well, be safe. Appreciate you taking the time, as always. Manny, as always, thank you so much for your support and uh, appreciate it. And again, to all of our student-athletes, 
especially today, a sad day for our, our, our Fordham football players. We're thinking of you. We're here for you. Uh, we are continuing to push forward to get activity and competition back on our Fordham campus. And we appreciate your understanding and to your parents and your families who've been so active and supportive, as well as our Fordham alumni that, are, that love us and engage us. We're thinking of you and our very best. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, stay positive, and please go Rams. A big thanks to Ed Cole and Monica McDermott for joining the show. Uncertainty in athletics and politics will continue to be on many minds as we head down the latter stretch of 2020. If you missed any of the conversations, you can go to WFUV.org to hear the full editions with Ed Cole and Monica McDermott. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Emmanuel Barbari.